It's that time of the year. Your vacation is coming up. You can already hear the beach waves, feel the warm breeze, relax, and think about work. You really, really want it all to work out while you're away. Monday.com gives you and the team that peace of mind. When all work is on one platform and everyone's in sync, things just flow. Wherever you are, tap the banner to go to Monday.com. Hey, I'm Ryan Reynolds. Recently, I asked Mint Mobile's legal team if big wireless companies are allowed to raise prices due to inflation. They said yes. And then when I asked if raising prices technically violates those onerous two-year contracts, they said, what the f*** are you talking about, you insane Hollywood ass. So to recap, we're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows full terms at mintmobile.com. When I were a lad, we liked our stars to be badly behaved. So when people say, Keith, have you ever smashed up a hotel room? Yes, well, please... In one <laughs> Next question. No, no. What was the rude word? Shit. Was it really? Good heavens. You frightened me to death. Oh, all right. So what about you girls behind? Are you, uh... These days, not so much. Now it seems every hero of sports field, screen and stadium has to be a role model. Kind to animals. Sweet to their parents. Polite to the public. They must be good people. But why has this change happened? And is it healthy? The most popular, most lucrative cultural expression at the moment is this very binary view of good versus bad that that wouldn't have looked out of place in Victorian England. You're listening to Stories of Our Times from The Times and The Sunday Times. I'm David Aronovich. Today, why have celebrities become so horribly nice? James, if you could just introduce yourself, what your name is, and what it is that you do. I'm James Marriott. I'm a columnist at The Times. I mainly write about, I suppose, ideas, history, society, social change, uh, how we behave, and how we live. Sorry, what does that leave out, then? Uh, Politics. (laughs) (laughs) That's nothing to do with how we live and who we are (laughs) in society. Okay, fair enough. Um, Now, the last time you came on, you were deputy books editor. What happened to that? I've moved on. I think uh, some of the administrative functions of my role, I wasn't necessarily always filling with maximum organisation. I I think I just thought it was better. I just just wrote. Are you trying to tell us that actually you're not very good or interested in organisation and that the only thing you really like doing is writing stuff? Yes, I am. Just want to be left by myself in my room. Okay, now let's talk about this thing that you spotted the other week. It was the column you wrote about niceness. Can you sum up for me in a sentence or two what that column was about? Yeah, so what I was arguing in this column was that nowadays I think we've kind of become used to the idea that niceness, or at least the performance of niceness or being a good person is kind of de rigueur for celebrities and artists and musicians. I think it's quite universal now that people want to present a good public relations image. They want to be seen to be a nice person. And I was sort of thinking this really wasn't always the case. In fact, in the past, it was often kind of the opposite was the case. 
So I was wondering why that was, why we sort of feel like we have to project a public image of niceness. And I was also questioning how good it is that we kind of look at all these celebrities behaving very relatably and think, oh, we love all these people because they're nice people, and how much it's useful to sometimes acknowledge that we're not always attracted to the nice in people, and we're often attracted to the bad. And there's that kind of slightly binary people sometimes mentioned about, can you separate the art from the artist? Can you have great art by a bad person? And I was kind of saying what we sort of have to accept is that that question is maybe a little bit more complicated, and often it's precisely because the artists whose work we love was a bad person is kind of what attracts us towards them and their work. Let's have a a long look at that proposition and some of the things that run towards it and away from it. But there was a very specific writer, wasn't there, who helped you make that connection? Yes. One sort of thread that was connecting them all was a Trinidadian British novelist called V.S. Naipaul, who won the Nobel Prize for Literature in 2001. And because all my very smartest friends were reading V.S. Naipaul, I thought, well, I should too. And that's that's where this column kind of starts. Right. So, V.S. Naipaul, tell us a bit about what he wrote and when you started reading his writing, just his writing, what you thought about it. I read two books by him. One is An Area of Darkness, his kind of slightly infamous travelogue about India. And the second thing I read was his novel, A Bend in the River, which is about a post-colonial African nation, probably based on the Congo. It's told from the perspective of a West African of Indian heritage who travels there to start a business. And as he's in this remote town in by this the titular Bend in the River, he kind of watches this state sort of collapse around him and all kinds of horrible, unsettling things happen. And it's a really extraordinary book. And the whole thing is sort of told with this very sort of austere bleak view of human nature. It's very unconsoling. It's very unillusioned about how horrible life can be. Its famous opening sentence is, the world is what it is. Men who are nothing, who allow themselves to become nothing, have no place in it. This is basically the sort of view of life that the novel presents, that we're just presented with this world and you have to fight your way through it because it's a horrible terrible and bleak place with all these kind of the forces of history and other human beings acting on you all the time. And it is a bleak view of life, but a very compelling one. And that's the kind of, that's what's attractive about Naipaul, I think, is that you kind of go to him for this sort of cold, horrible shock of reality. Right. So it's a novel about entropy, really, things falling apart and the naturalness in terms of human beings of things falling apart. Yes. The idea that human order and human structure is very contingent. Human lives and human happiness and safety is really very fragile. And we might be used to it in the West and our kind of pampered existences in a, in a democracy. But I think one of the ideas in the novel is that if you're not in that kind of political environment, suddenly all kinds of forces of history and politics are acting on you completely mercilessly and from all angles. And there's nothing you can do about it often. And that's a kind of a sort of terrifying horrible fact of life that we've been quite insulated from. But I suppose it's kind of interesting to think now that suddenly politics and history perhaps seem a bit closer to us than they have done previously. But it's something I think that Naipaul was able to see at a time when almost nobody else was writing like that because of his extraordinary kind of personal history. He lived a life basically unlike any other English novelist in the post-war era. Right. Now let's talk about himself. I mean, he won the Nobel Prize, as you said, in 2001. He won the Booker Prize back in 1971. He was a 
I don't, don't think anybody really ever described him as anything other than a great writer. And just about nobody ever described him as a nice person. The first fascinating thing about him is his extraordinary life history. He was born in Trinidad, which was a British colony. His grandfather had come over from India as an indentured labourer. He emigrated from India to Trinidad in one of these kind of weird quirks of the British Empire. He lived a fairly horrible life. Naipaul's father, a guy called Sipasad Naipaul, managed to slowly haul himself out of a life of manual labour to become an incredibly precariously employed freelance journalist. Naipaul was a brilliant, one of, well, the brilliant pupil at his school in Trinidad and won one of I think, a couple of scholarships that basically sent him from Trinidad to study at Oxford University. And this was a kind of horribly dislocating experience for him. But from his education at Oxford, he managed to cling on to things like the outer fringes of the BBC to start publishing stories. And from this kind of just incredibly outsider-ish, just very poor position, he managed to build himself up to become a really great writer. And one of the things I always think about his character is he knew what it was to be wounded by history. I think most novels are about human beings hurting other human beings, but sort of Naipaul, you feel, is the victim of these kind of much more dangerous, much bigger forces. The fact that his family went from India to Trinidad to Britain, and just all the kind of brutalities of colonial and imperial history are kind of working on this one man. And it screwed him up quite a lot. He was renowned for being a really, really horrible, kind of monstrously horrible person. Tell us a bit about that monstrousness so that the listener has an idea of what we're talking about. I think almost everyone would say he was, if not certainly a racist, probably a racist. He was very bigoted. He sort of effectively destroyed his his first wife, Patricia Hale. He kind of treated her abominably. He may have been a domestic abuser. I mean, there are just endless horrible stories that come out of his life. So when Patricia was dying of cancer. He was already having an affair with the woman he was going to marry just a couple of months after. He was just terribly narcissistic, incredibly bigoted, not just a nasty person, but a real a real kind of monster. But you read all about this and you knew all about this, and that got you thinking about the question, not just of whether we separate the art from the artist, but you took it a little bit further. Your thought was that at certain moments, it is actually the cruelty that is part of the attraction. Yes. So I guess what I started thinking about with V.S. Naipaul was that one of the things he's left us is one of the most extraordinary authorised biographies ever written. It's called The World Is What It Is by Patrick French. And almost everything we know about Naipaul's monstrosity comes from this biography of him, which was written with Naipaul's total kind of collusion. He gave interviews to the biographer, and he just seemed to have no sort of qualms about all these horrible things about him being known to the public. He didn't think that this would get in the way, people liking his novels. He really sort of understood or believed that when this was presented to the public, people would manage to keep the two things separate, Naipaul the monster and Naipaul the novelist. And it just struck me as what a kind of extraordinarily strange decision that now seems. It really struck me that a huge shift had taken place in the last sort of 14, 15 years since Patrick French's book was published. I don't think any modern author or musician or celebrity would even begin to think that it was a good idea to collude in a biography that just laid out all their faults, all their monstrosity, quite clearly for the public to see. And I think there's a very interesting social change that has happened in that time. I think it's something that's true more widely in our culture. I think kind of Naipaul was a particularly extreme 
example of something that's going on more widely. The thing that stood out to you was the idea that, whereas in the past, we might have been able to say to ourselves, bad person, great book. Nowadays, we have somehow or other morphed to the point whereby we say, bad person, not reading book. Yes, exactly. And also that we might have, in the past, we might have kind of almost wanted, well, I think we did want bad behaviour from celebrities. We kind of wanted to know that rock stars were trashing hotel rooms, making their way through mountains of drugs. And that didn't bother us. In fact, that was kind of part of their appeal. They broke all the rules and they behaved as no kind of self-respecting middle-class Times columnist would behave. Yeah. And you had some examples today of the way in which celebrities oh, celebrities is a very broad term for very good authors and so on but we know the kind of people you're talking about are supposed to be good you even suggest that there are sort of morality clauses that publishers make their authors sign i mean that cannot be true it is true this is a kind of new innovation in publishing where when you sign a contract to the publisher for your book you may not inevitably, but for some people, you may have to sign a clause or a contract guaranteeing your good behaviour so that basically, if you behave badly and get caught up in some sort of huge public scandal that sinks the book and means the publisher can't sell any copies, they're, they're not liable for that. Whereas, you know, no one ever made V.S. Naipaul sign, sign a morality clause. I said in my column that if, if he'd been made to touch a morality clause, it would probably sort of just burst into flames on contact with him. And... <laughs> Yeah, this struck me as just a really interesting symptom of our kind of nervousness around bad behaviour and our kind of wider cultural desire for the people we admire, the artists, celebrities, musicians we admire, to be good people, which I think is new and interesting. I always think if you look at the really, the celebrity stories that completely consume and fascinate us now is that over much tinier lapses in good behaviour. I'm always fascinated by this sort of, these stories you often hear about James Corden, the actor and comedian turned American late night TV host. We have three hours, $300 to shoot a music video for a song on Harry's new album. Now, we have no locations. We don't know what we're doing. We don't know where we're shooting it. But we're going to give it our best try. I've never directed a music video before. Are you trusting me with this? Yeah. <laughs> There's a kind of endless fascination, I always think, for stories that James Corden's public performance as a kind of man full of bonhomie, very cuddly, relatable figure, has lapsed. And he's he's shown himself to be a kind of rude, nasty person in, in slightly petty ways. I'm always reading stories about, you know, James Corden, you know, shoving past people on, on aeroplanes or <laughs> not talking to his wife for the duration of the flight and stuff. And it struck me that that's a kind of a real symptom of the way that our perception of morality has changed. Because once upon a time, we were sort of fascinated by huge moral lapses. And now we're kind of fixated on these tiny little moral flaws in people that kind of show that this sort of obligatory performance of niceness, which I think most people in the public eye feel they have to put on has kind of slipped and we've seen past the real them. So if we go to the 70s, the big authors are not people, uh, particularly the big American authors, are not people who anybody ever suggested were nice people. It just was not any part of their, their personality. And as for rock stars, well, I was in my early 20s when punk began and the whole idea was that you were as awful as you could possibly be 
And that was the way we wanted it at the time. Is, is that your perception too? Yes, I, I completely agree. And I think actually, it's not almost not the case that being a good person would have been irrelevant for authors. But I feel a lot of kind of authors writing in the 70s and 80s, people like Philip Roth, John Updike, Martin Amos, get into the 90s, Brett Easton Ellis, I think they might have been slightly embarrassed if they'd thought they had public reputations of being very nice, lovely people who are always helping old ladies across the street. I think it was their perception that part of what made them special and part of what made them unique and interesting artists was that maybe they were more callous or more cruel or more selfish or more difficult than the ordinary population and made them think that they had something original or interesting or challenging to tell us about about culture and life and society. There's another point that you could add to this, that indeed, if you are a great artist or a great writer, part of your personality is that you only really care about the art and the writing. You don't care about other human beings. You don't care about your wife and your husband and your children and society because you've got this great art in you you've got to get out. And that's all that counts. Yes, exactly. And this wasn't an idea that I think was held universally. This again, maybe something we'll come on to, but that I think is not quite how the Victorians would have looked at things. It was quite important to the Victorian upper middle classes that the people whose art they were consuming were virtuous, good people. And I think this idea that artists are difficult, bad, very selfish people has been running through culture for a while, but it was in that kind of post-war era when it went mainstream and started to apply to musicians and rock stars and celebrities as well. I mean, you just have to look at the difference between the rock stars of the early 1960s, people like Cliff Richard or, you know, the kind of earliest incarnations of the very clean-cut, approachable Beatles versus the kinds of people whose music we listened to a decade or so later who were the very opposite of clean-cut and smiling. And this sort of idea that artists were necessarily terrible, difficult people just really exploded through our culture, I think, from the 1960s, although it had been latent there for decades, if not perhaps a century, a century previously. In a moment, we'll discuss how the works of Charles Dickens highlight a Victorian sensibility that now seems to be back in fashion. But first, a message from a colleague. I'm Mariella Frostrup, and every day on my show on Times Radio, we speak to some of the biggest names in the world of the arts, culture and politics. We bring you discussions about new social trends and all the latest news, views and interviews. We can only do this thanks to the subscribers of The Times and Sunday Times. Subscribe today by visiting thetimes.co.uk forward slash stories of our times. Hey, I'm Ryan Reynolds. At Mint Mobile, we like to do the opposite of what Big Wireless does. They charge you a lot, we charge you a little. So naturally, when they announced they'd be raising their prices due to inflation, we decided to deflate our prices due to not hating you. That's right. We're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. When you make decisions for your company, you look for the no-brainers. If you have a lot of mailing to do, Stamps.com is the ultimate no-brainer. 
Use the Stamps.com mobile app to mail everything you need to keep your business running with up to 89% off USPS and UPS. Make the same no-brainer decision as over 1 million other businesses with Stamps.com. Use code PROGRAM for a special offer. That's Stamps.com, code PROGRAM. Now, I know that you looked at the novels of Dickens and look at what you can tell from his incredibly, immensely popular at the time writings about what he considered to be and what his audience considered to be the virtues of heroes and heroines. Dickens is probably one of the most commonly cited of the sort of phenomena of this, I think we'd now think quite restrictive, oppressive bourgeois morality where he deals in these female characters who are often almost hilariously sweet-natured, charitable, self-effacing, with incredible sort of chastity. You take uh, Little Nell in The Old Curiosity Shop or Esther Summerson in Bleak House as these kind of archetypes of these sort of ludicrous Victorian images of womanhood that are just sort of so, so well-behaved and so moral that they just seem preposterous to modern readers. I mean, some of his heroes, Nicholas Nickleby is an almost impossibly good young man. And the only bad thing you can usually say about a Dickens hero is he's a bit hot-tempered on occasion and a little bit naively virtuous rather than wisely virtuous. And it's interesting because it was clearly very important for Dickens's middle-class readers that they were reading stories with good, nice heroes and heroines. What people reading Dickens now, of course, would say is that it's Dickens' villains. People like Mr. Quilp, the sort of psychopathic dwarf who's the villain of the old curiosity shop, who would find more interesting and say that this is where Dickens' genius is really showing itself. But I think that was apparent to his Victorian readers, because I think to the Victorian middle classes, it's kind of a cliche, but it's true. Morality was extremely important, and they wanted to know that their heroes were morally virtuous, and they themselves at least expected each other to meet, you know, high standards of moral virtue. So is it your view that we are trying to make our celebrities and the people we say we want to look up to or heroise as virtuous as, say, a Dickens hero or heroine? Yes, absolutely. And I think this is a relatively recent phenomenon in our culture that would have kind of, I think, baffled a lot of people in the 60s and 70s. But I always think, for example, of... Lytton Strachey's book, Eminent Victorians, which was published in 1918, consisted of biographies of these kind of almost Victorian saints, people like Florence Nightingale, Thomas Arnold. He was just immensely sarcastic about their reputations, took them apart, showed that all their kind of virtue was really hypocrisy, was immensely sceptical about how how wonderful they really were. And for the kind of next 50 years, maybe even up until the kind of turn of the century, or perhaps even more recently than that, Lytton Strachey was viewed as this kind of genius who'd seen through Victorian moral hypocrisy, showed that actually a society can't have all these kind of perfect heroes who are completely good, who are completely faultless. And that, I think, was a kind of view that was very mainstream. We thought of we sort of thought of people, our heroes, as complex and flawed. And it was a bit embarrassing to think that there were people who weren't complex and flawed. And I think we're now getting back into a place where we kind of have cultural icons who we look on in a similar way to the way the Victorians would have looked on their cultural icons. Well, an example of a recent exception, by recent, I mean about 30 years ago, would have been Christopher Hitchens' demolition of Mother Teresa. 
which caused a lot of outrage at the time, but which a lot of people enormously enjoyed. So it was very divided. And maybe that's maybe that's part of the point about this, which is actually this causes immense division with some of us wanting to find that the heroes and heroines are ordinary people with feet of clay and so on, and other people being shocked by the idea that anybody could be like that. And if they are genuinely like that, they must be cancelled. And if they are not like that, then the attack upon them must be stoutly resisted. Yes, exactly. What I'm taking from this is that you'd like a, let's put it this way, a rebalancing. And I wonder how that rebalancing would go. Would it go like this? Let's not pretend that we're as virtuous as we like to think. Let's not judge people quite so much for their lack of virtue. And let's every now and again enjoy the achievements of those people who are not in the least bit virtuous. Yes, a little bit like that. I think perhaps it's kind of more about asking us to be honest about what we find appealing in human nature. And it was reading those novels by Naipaul that part of what is enjoyable about those novels is the real sense of kind of cruelty in them, the way that this is a man showing you the world in a completely unillusioned way and showing you this kind of terrible truth. And part of what's appealing about it is the fact that he was probably a horrible person who was able to confront terrible things more cynically and perhaps also more honestly than than he otherwise might have been able to. Now we have social media, which is this kind of huge surveillance system that everybody participates in, watching everybody else for moral lapses. And I think celebrities are aware they're being watched all the time by people who are always judging them and waiting for them to kind of make a moral slip and they can sort of jump on them and say, oh, you did everything wrong, which I think is why part of the reason this modern pose of virtue has developed as a kind of self-protective thing. I guess I would say as all of us implicated in watching more celebrated famous people go about their business and judging them, I think often very harshly for quite mild moral lapses, is to think, well, are we purely attracted to these people because they are wonderful, virtuous people? Or are we ourselves also implicated? And do we sort of love them because we kind of, we're fascinated by the parts of them that are immoral or difficult or bad? And perhaps we should look a little more honestly at ourselves and ask whether we really are these kind of virtue-loving people in a position to always judge when people make moral mistakes. Are you worried that the the fashion for niceness leads inevitably to an overarching blandness? I think that's certainly a problem. I, I think I would probably say that there definitely is a kind of a lot of modern culture, especially probably mainstream modern culture, that is quite morally bland. The fact that the most popular films are, are superhero films, which kind of take this very binary view of good and evil. And it just seems very significant to me that this is the most popular most lucrative cultural expression at the moment is this very binary view of good versus bad that, that wouldn't have looked out of place in Victorian England. I think it can be boring. The other thing to say, I suppose, is that often, perversely, you find that actually writers and artists work quite well with strict moral codes. And it's precisely, art often thrives precisely when it has restrictions on it that make it more difficult to express yourself and have to force you to be more creative. We talked about the Victorian era as this time of very strict moral codes. It was also one of the great centuries of literature because writers were being forced to kind of deal with this very strict morality. They had to be clever and careful and interesting, perhaps, about how they navigated those social codes. And I think there's an argument that often, perversely, is a situation that can produce more interesting art. I can't well wonder. I mean, James, 
everybody who knows you thinks you're a very nice person as far as I know. Well, not everybody, everybody I know who knows you thinks you're a very nice person. And I was thinking, why don't you lead the way by being a bit more horrible? Yeah. Where, where should I start? Well, I don't know. I mean, where would you like to start? You could start with me. You could start by saying, <laughs> you know, uh, that was quite fun, David, but, you know, actually it could have been done better. And I seriously wonder whether you got to the heart of anything there because fundamentally you're a bit shallow. <laughs> Well, yes, I'll, I'll, I'll tweet something to that effect uh, right now, and um, we'll see if your the- thesis that the culture is crying out for uh, a, a sort of evil, disordered genius who will say horrible things is, is, is correct, and whether I can do that by sending you horrible tweets. Oh, God. Don't do that. You'll just get a lot of people agreeing with you, James. <laughs> <laughs> You've been listening to Stories of Our Times, a podcast brought to you thanks to subscribers of The Times and The Sunday Times, with me, David Aronovich, and my guest, James Marriott, a columnist at The Times. And you can find all of James's work at thetimes.co.uk. The producer was Will Rowe, the executive producer is Kate Ford, and sound design was by Tom Birchall. If you like what you just heard, leave us a review and a five-star rating. It helps others find the show. See you again soon.